of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week was an absolute treat. As King decided to reopen a door we all had thought closed, locked, and left behind with the 2004 publication of The Dark Tower, a return to not just Midworld, but also a visit with Oi, Jake, Susanna, Eddie, and even Roland himself, the gunslinger, in more pleasant moments before the tragedies depicted in the concluding novels of his magnum opus, moments that allow a celebration of these beloved characters and the power of storytelling in Stephen King's 2012 publication of The Wind Through the Keyhole. So here's the deal with Wind Through the Keyhole. Uh, when it was released in 2012, it came at a time where I was just, I, uh, I just wasn't into it. I mean, you'd think that a new Dark Tower novel would make me shoot through the roof with excitement. And don't get me wrong, I was excited, but it's not as if I had a countdown. I wasn't bursting out of my skin to get this novel, for a number of reasons. One, my peak King fandom was long behind me. Two, I was still burned from my initial read of the conclusion of the Dark Tower eight years before. Three, the idea that this story would be shoehorned in between books four and five did not excite me. I'm not a fan of lost or missing stories and in general i find them to lack any tension and if they're ever read chronologically they never truly seem to fit in so i mean for instance if someone were to read these novels literally then that person might find it a little strange that the stark blast was never referred to again when the events of the gunslinger the drawing of the three the wastelands and wizard and glass are all referred to by the time all the characters hit um wolves of the collar but that's only if someone was foolish enough to read the series this way. I'm going to get into it in much more detail, but this novel needs, guys, needs to be read in the chronological order of publication. It needs to be read after the events of The Dark Tower, even though it takes place before because of the major underlying theme that's running throughout it. Again, I'm going to get to that later, but going back to my lack of excitement, <clears throat> this type of lost story, it's, it's, like, um, it's like eating a lobster. Now, bear with me on this. I love lobster, okay? So I, I like mine uh, baked stuffed. I like a baked stuffed lobster with gallons of butter. Now, I feel that reading a story like Wind Through the Keyhole, you know, it's like trying to pull out the lobster meat from the, the, just the little legs um, after gorging yourself on the stuffing, the tail and the claw meat, all right? So the tail and the claw meat and the stuffing, that was the main part of the meal that was the dark tower series that was books one through seven right um and this this is just eating just the little legs trying to get a little bit more meat out of the legs you know so for me i mean the main part of the meal had already been eaten or or one further okay you know if each book is a meal you know reading this um is like asking me to order only lobster legs for dinner which is about a teaspoon of lobster meat, tablespoon, if you're lucky. I mean, there's just not much meat there. So plus, since the release of The Dark Tower Book 7, in between the release of that and, and this, uh, King had entered a relationship with Marvel Comics, which resulted with the publication of a series of Dark Tower comic books. So, I mean, that had already wet any Dark Tower-related appetite that I had had. And on top of it, I knew that the Wind Through the Keyhole would include art by Jay Lee, whose depictions of Roland I could find in the aforementioned Dark Tower of the Gunslinger Born issues. And nothing against Jay Lee, I love Jay Lee. <clears throat> I mean, his run with Paul Jenkins on The Inhumans is probably a highlight of that particular property, and I hope that Marvel Studios pulls heavily from it for the Inhumans movie. But it's just that when this novel came out, as much as I love Jay Lee's representation of Midworld, I was already getting antsy for new artists to jump aboard. And while I'm thinking of it, um, by the way, everyone should be following Richard Eisenhoff on Facebook, guys. Um, he worked on the Dark Tower comics um, as well, and he posts his illustrations on his Facebook page. And they're incredible, incredible, absolutely breathtaking, so you should follow him. Um, but anyway, I, I know that I sound like I'm complaining here. I'm just saying all of this to set the stage for the mood that I was in when this novel was released. 
It came, I read it, enjoyed it fine, and I didn't think about it again when I was finished with it. But since, you know, but since then, as you know, during my reread of the Dark Tower series for this podcast, I, I came to love King's ending and what he gave us, and I wanted to see what he had to say about Midworld once again. And just let me get to the chase. I loved it. And though I don't own the edition that includes Jay Lee's art, all you have to do is co- you know, just complete a quick Google search. The images of Roland, of the Skin Man, of, of Merlin, uh, the tiger looking at Tim through the bars of his cage, um, of Tim standing atop the dragon's head, of the government man's abduction of Tim, they're all beautiful. Now remember, in previous episodes, I discussed how I wished the publishers would just reach out to comic book artists to provide the artistic duties for these types of work, because it's literally their job to provide a story within their pictures, and each of Lee's illustrations capture either a specific moment from the text, a concept, or a sensation. They are arguably the best of the Dark Tower images depicted in the novel so far. And though there's no tension in the bookend stories of the Stark Blast, how can you not smile at reuniting with the Kotet once more, possibly one last time? But the moments with the Kotet are just a hook to lure us back into Midworld, and this allows us to get into a larger statement of storytelling where King fleshes out the strange mythology of his fantasy world free from the larger narrative of the Dark Tower. But how about that title, huh? For a series in which doors are one of the most memorable and iconic images, where the novels we read functions as doors themselves, door to this other strange, magical, and dangerous world. Though we might have thought that door long closed, King allows us to peek through the keyhole one more time. I live for stuff like that. Anyway, before I get any further, uh, let me read a listener email. And um, I think that you all know you can you can write into me at um, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, and I, I think that's really important, guys, for you to be able to share your stories, like the one that I'm about to share right now. Um, so, uh, Lee writes, Dear Constant Reader, You have been, in this summer of long and mindless tasks, my constant companion. You have been my company, as I painted an entire house, in which, and strangely apropos, a man had recently died as I washed hour upon hour of dishes, painted barns, and lean-tos, and washed window after window. Ah, the things we do to pay off student loans, huh? Though, of course, I have so much internal discourse with you as you help keep my mind away from the monotony. No imagined discussion I had in response to your thoughts prompted me to write to you until now. There's a scene in It that I know that you loathe it. I must bring my perspective to it as opposed to your own. I do this for reasons of gender, experience, and the shared growing up that we traversed through it in nearly identical circumstances in parallel years. Perhaps you are my twinner if twinners can have opposite genders, and why not? Ka is a wheel but also a coin, with two sides balanced against each other as they roll across a gunslinger's knuckles. So nice to write in that language. So my parallels to you are this. In the summer of my second year of middle school, a friend handed me a thick book with a picture of a little paper boat floating down a gutter towards a menacing, monstrous hand. Hundreds of pages later, I had taken my first steps out of childhood along with the losers. I became a voracious constant reader, taking on books that both enlightened me, that were occasionally just a bit beyond my years. Your points about the viewpoint of the author writing Pet Cemetery versus the writing of the Tommyknockers mirrors my experience. Um, as a reader, understanding, developing with age and acquired knowledge. Like you, I found so much in rereadings and examinations that I simply couldn't grasp at 13, and it's been a real pleasure to follow along with you in rediscovery. Where our stories split is that instead of a young boy, I was a young girl, and in a great many ways, not parenting, I have an amazing father who I love dearly, I was Beverly Marsh. I'm the best shot, but I also didn't wear cool clothes. My closest friends were three boys who shared a proclivity for geekiness with me, one of whom, now 20 years on since our friendship began, reappeared in my life and is now my fiancé. And I was a social outcast because my father was the principal. And like Beverly, sex was terrifying mystery that no amount of well-meaning, relatively useless sex ed could shed any light on. 
Now I understand your intense dislike and disapproval of the scene in the sewers where Beverly shares her gift with the other losers, and I laud you for your position because your arguments come from a place that is kind and virtuous and shows you to be a good man of good character. You object to the scene for all the absolutely right reasons, and I will now disagree with you for a simple and yet very complex reason, and that is my gender. How can I explain what it is to be a newly minted teenage girl? The strange unease of knowing that before the summer, the boys has the boys that have just been your friends and equals and as likely targets for throwing a water balloon at and playing video games with, now they were your friends but also a shapeless, vagueless, vague threat? That suddenly your parents, who welcomed your friends like their own sons a summer ago, now asked you in a sliding sidewise fashion if maybe you shouldn't make friends with more girls? Also, those shorts have gotten a little too small for you, dear. Let's get some longer ones. Maya, you're going up fast. Let's think about a bra shopping this weekend. It is frightening. No one explains anything in concrete words, but present you with shoulds and shouldn'ts of being a young lady. You didn't think of yourself as anything but another young body with scraped knees and sunburns, and now modesty is a constant stressor, and this thing, this something that you are told boys now want from you, makes you want to cry. What do they want? In the language of the children, they want it. They want you to do it to you. And you don't even really understand what it is, or why you should be afraid. But you have been told to fear and be on your guard, and so you do. They worry about you, Bevy. They worry a lot. Those words made me cry with recognition and fear. Well, my parents loved me dearly, and my childhood was idyllic. Almost no girl escapes that pressing, formless concern. Beverly Marsh was my touchstone for fearing, understanding, and finally accepting sexuality. Now, please don't get me wrong. The scene as it stands is very disturbing. You're absolutely right. It's not okay. But for me, it took away a very significant fear for a simple reason. Beverly made a choice to have that, that experience with the boys who were her friends who cared for her. She controlled those circumstances. She made that choice. Coerced by the storyline, yes. Now that I'm older, I agree with the extremely troubling problem, but for teenage me, it changed my perspective on female virginity from something that is taken from you to something that can be given willingly, specifically to a person, or in this case, persons, who love, accept, understand, and will protect you. That is a message I got from no one but my mother during my growing up, and since talking to your parents about sex is always a little fraught, I took the lesson more clearly from King. In the media and the PTA, in the eyes of the grown-ups, our virtue and innocence and modesty must be fiercely protected. Instead of something that we women possess and control, it is viewed as an eventuality that must be protected against as long as possible. Boys got to view sex as exciting and fun and almost competitive, whereas we girls always talked in whispers about, what did he try to do to you? We were pure and ignorant princesses, waiting in towers and either to be rescued by marriage or taken by the monster. And if the monster got you, you were a little more than a whore. I'm 29 now, and while I rejoice at the steps society has taken since my growing up, I despair to see the same cycle still played out by the establishment. Beverly Marsh in That Sewer gave 13-year-old me the first sense of agency that I ever had about my own body and that I could make decisions independently of the adult world about who and what I was. And though the worst of it happened, and someone forced my body, they could never force my choice. My body was not myself, not the core of existence my mind was, and no one could ever force my mind without my consent. No one could ever make me not me by attacking my physical form. It freed me from being tied to the physical self and into a higher understanding of who I was and what I was. Being a girl was just a side effect of being a human being. What I really was, was a person. A few years later, a boyfriend tried to rape me. It wasn't violent or anything like you would see in a movie. He tried to play on, on the romantic ideas that girls are fed about true love and forever and that he loved me so that he would never hurt me. And I knew in my heart and soul that he was a loser in the truest sense of the word because I knew that unlike boys in my own losers club, he was lying. He lied because he wanted it. And when he did start to hurt me, I balled up my fists like my friends had taught me when they decided if I wanted to play like the boys, I needed to fight like one, and I broke his nose. I got away because of the losers, mine and kings. They made me brave and strong, and they gave me a place to belong. I truly loved and love all three of my losers. We are aunt and uncles to each other's children. We are still the people who hold each other up in this life, and like Ben and Bev, one of my losers and I get the happy ending. They were my yardsticks for every man I ever allowed into my life. They were and are my cotet. 
There is no sacrifice I would not make for them, and there is nothing they have ever asked of me except for me to be myself. I don't know if that made sense. It's so hard to paint with words a portrait of being a girl, a woman. It's from the Impressionist school at best, but that's my story. It's why I can't reject that scene. Is King, dare I say it, really problematic in his use of sex across his works? You bet your fern he is. Seriously, on a raft about to get eaten in the cold? What guy could have even been capable? But sometimes he gets it right. And maybe in this circumstance, I'm the only person in the world that this scene did anything for. But as a writer myself, that one person that you can reach, you can change, is worth it. There. I've said my piece. Thank you, Cy, for everything, and don't quit. Beep, beep, Richie. Lee. Um, so, guys, I mean, I, I can't really add anything to that. I just, I, I've been meaning for a while to really share this particular email because this one uh this is a big one this is a big email um you know as i've always said i think that's important for us to share our king stories and what king means to us and in this case someone cue up elton john someone saved my life tonight uh because in this case it looks like stephen king you know helped give lee what she needed um and someone saved her life that night and it was her, and it was because of the, the power of Stephen King's writing. That's something, guys. That really is something. So I've written to Lee, and I've just really expressed how grateful I was that, that she, she wrote in. And Lee, if you're listening still, just thank you again. Thank you so much. Um, I hope all is well, and don't hesitate to, to write in again. And everyone else, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in at StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. Um, and if you haven't, head on over to iTunes um, because a subscription um, and a review over at iTunes would really help get the word out as well. And with that, um, I'm now going to launch into my uh, Wikipedia summary of Wind Through the Keyhole so I will have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. The novel begins with Roland and his quartet arriving at a river on their journey to the Dark Tower. An elderly man who operates a ferry gets them across the river and warns them that a severe depression, Stark Blast, is coming, and that they can find shelter in a building a few miles ahead. They reach the shelter just in time, and while they wait out the storm, Roland tells them of an adventure in his youth to keep them occupied, the Skin Man. Following the death of Roland's mother, his father sends him and his friend Jamie DeCurry west of town of Debaria on a mission to capture the Skin Man an apparent shapeshifter who terrorizes the town and surrounding areas by transforming into various animals at night and embarking on murderous rampages. Roland and Jamie take a train to Debaria, but it derails before arriving and they must finish their journey on horse. On their way, they pass through a town known as Serenity, a community of women where Roland's mother lived after suffering a mental breakdown following her affair with Martin. It is here that they learn of a woman attacked by the skin man and hear her tale. Roland and Jamie arrive in Debaria, and with the help of a local sheriff, Hugh Peavy, they determine that the Skin Man is most likely a salt miner from a nearby village. The next morning, they discover that another brutal attack has occurred overnight on a local farm. They investigate the scene and discover a single survivor, a small boy named Bill, who has lost his father in the attack. Roland and Jamie determine that the murderer left the scene on horseback, and Roland sends Jamie to the salt mines to round up every miner who has a horse or is able to ride one. While returning to Debaria with Bill, Roland performs his hypnotism trick, which Roland first used in his chronological life in Wizarding Glass, with one of his spare rounds of ammunition. Under hypnosis, Bill relates what he saw of the Skin Man. Bill tells Roland that he saw the Skin Man in his human form after the attack, but only glimpsed his feet. He states that the Skin Man had a tattoo of a blue ring around his ankle. The tattoo indicates that the man spent time in the prison at a now-abandoned military barracks further west of Debaria. That area had fallen to the chaos of John Farson, the good man, within the last generation. Back in town, Roland brings Bell to a cell in Sheriff's Station. He plans to walk each suspect past Bill in the hopes that the young boy can identify the skin man or that the skin man will reveal himself by fleeing due to fear of being identified. While Roland and Bill wait for Jamie to round up the suspects, Roland tells Bill a story from his own childhood, The Wind Through the Keyhole. In this story, within a story, a boy named Tim Ross lives with his mother Nell in a forgotten village that fears the annual collection of property taxes by a man named the Covenant Man. Tim recently lost his father, who was said to have been killed by a dragon while in the woods chopping trees. After the death of his father Nell, no longer able to pay the taxes to keep their home, 
marries his father's best friend and business partner, Vern Kells, who moves in with him. Kells is a mean man, prone to heavy drinking, who begins to abuse both Tim and Nell. One day, the Covenant man comes to collect the taxes, and he secretly tells Tim to meet him later in the woods. During this meeting, the Covenant man reveals to Tim that it is actually Kells who killed his father, not a dragon, and with the help of a scrying bowl, shows Kells beating his mother, causing her to go blind. Later, the Covenant man sends Tim a vision, telling him that if Tim again visits the Covenant man in the woods, he will give Tim magic that will allow his mother to see again. Tim, armed with a gun given to him by his school teacher, journeys into the dangerous woods and is led into a swamp by the mischievous fairy, Armenita. Here, Tim almost becomes victim to a dragon and other mysterious swamp creatures, but he is saved by his gun as well as a group of friendly swamp people who mistake him for a gunslinger. The swamp people guide him to the far side of the swamp and equip him with a small mechanical talking device from the old people that helps guide him on his journey. Eventually, Tim arrives at a dogen where he finds a caged tiger, which wears the key to the dogen around its neck. A Stark Blast approaches, and Tim, realizing that this is likely a trap set for him by the Covenant Man, befriends the tiger. Tim and the tiger ride out the storm under a magical protective blanket. The next morning, Tim discovers that the tiger is actually Merlin, a white magician who had been trapped in the cage for years due to black magic. Merlin gives Tim a potion to cure his mother's blindness and sends him back to his mother on the flying magic blanket. Returning home, Tim brings Sight back to his mother. Tim is attacked by Kells, who had secretly entered the home as Tim tended to his mother, but the boy is saved by his mother, who kills Kell with her late husband's axe. As Roland finishes telling Wynn through the keyhole, Jamie arrives back into Baria with the salt mine suspects. Young Bill is able to identify the skin man due to his ankle tattoo and an associated scar, at which time the skin man transforms into a snake and kills two people. Roland shoots the snake with a specially crafted silver bullet which he had made upon their arrival in town, killing it. Roland and Jamie travel back to Serenity, where the women agree to adopt young Bill who is now an orphan. Roland is also given a note written long ago by his mother. In the note, his mother claims she forgives Roland for his act of accidentally killing her. With his Skin Man story finished, Roland and Katet find that the Stark Blast has passed, leveling every structure in the area except for the building in which they took shelter. They soon pack their belongings and resume their journey to the Dark Tower. So guys, here we go. Here's the analysis. And I should say here, I should have said this earlier, but I'll say this here. Spoilers on, guys. Um, for anyone that has not finished the Dark Tower series, you really should not be reading Wind Through the Keyhole before you finish the Dark Tower series. Even though, yes, this does fit in between books 4 and 5. It is not meant to be read between books 4 and 5. It is meant to be read after the conclusion of the Dark Tower. So when I review this, I'm going to be reviewing it in the context of all of the other Dark Tower books, which means that I will be giving spoilers to the entire series, including the end of the Dark Tower. So if you have not finished the Dark Tower, um, then and you want to read the Dark Tower, then you should probably shut this off. Um, and if, I, if you are listening and you haven't finished the Dark Tower and you've gotten to this point and you are thinking about rereading Went Through the Keyhole before picking up Wolves of the College, do not read Wind Through the Keyhole. Do not read it before you finish the Dark Tower. Like I said, you're supposed to read it. Books 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then, then Wind Through the Keyhole. This is not book 4.5, as some people point out. All right, so with that said, here's the review. Stark Blast. First of all, okay... What a cool companion name to the thunderclap, Stark Blast. The story begins in full with a sentence that does exactly what it's intended to do, bridge the gap between books, bringing us from the strange wizardry of Flag in the concluding pages of Wizard and Glass and getting us ready for Jake's growth in Wolves of the Kala. The boy Jake began to range farther and farther, King writes, and Susanna immediately questions if Roland worries for him. Is this a loaded line? It's hard not to think about Jake's ultimate fate. So, a line like this packs an extra punch. And with what we know, Susanna, the answer is yes, we do worry about him. Furthermore, and I'll get into this later, um, while I'm not a big proponent of prequels and Shunan horning in the missing adventures of so-and-so, like I've said before, it works for King because... He had spent so much time building up the concept of Ka, 
and the fact that the Dark Tower saga concludes with Roland endlessly being crushed beneath that wheel, it's very fitting that we go back. And talk about bittersweet, huh? I mean, who among us wasn't brokenhearted at the George R.R. Martin-like treatment of our characters in the Dark Tower? So to see them again, before their pain begins, them existing in that sweet spot of kef and hope, it's a wonderful moment to share. But, you know, the other half of us is screaming at them in the hopes that they'll be able to hear us, that maybe in our hands we are holding one of the doors through which they'll be able to hear our yearnings so that maybe, just maybe, they can stop Susanna from allowing Mia to take her to the Dixie Pig, to warn Eddie to make sure that he puts the final bullet in Peemly Prentice before Prentice can do the same to him, to tell the Cotet to be waiting to put Mordred out of his misery, to warn them to get to King sooner before one of them has to sacrifice their life to save him, and most importantly, to warn Roland to either die for his tower or walk away once the Crimson King has been beaten, and after he's saying all of the names of those he had loved and lost along the way. It's a light book, the shortest read of any of the Dark Tower books, and without the Dark Tower as a destination point to reach, we can take it easy. But knowing the pain the characters, and we the reader by association, have to endure, clouds the stories within a cloud as black as the ones draped over the Devor toy. Still, it's undeniably great to visit these characters again. There's been a lot of talk about King including himself in his story in the final three books that precede this one. And one of the criticisms is that it makes these characters less real. But if you've listened to my review of The Dark Tower, then you'll know that I feel that by including himself in the text, King is confirming that he is not originating them, that something is using him as a vessel to record these stories that are occurring elsewhere, and this makes our characters, to me, even more real. Anyway, King settles back into his easy rhythms of each of them. Susanna, the voice of reason, Roland, the haunted knight, Eddie, who won't shut up. This opportunity to write the characters again should be treated as a celebration. I mean, how else are we supposed to take it? Just look at the reunion between Susanna and Oi, two characters who, for all intents and purposes, have just seen each other, but King writes their reunion as if they haven't seen each other in years or a lifetime. On page 7 of the hardcover edition. Uttering shrill yips that were the closest he could get to barks, Oi flew across the raft, disappeared into the barn-like structure, and emerged on their side. He came charging up the path with his ears lowered against his skull and his gold-ringed eyes bright. Slow down, Shug. You'll give yourself a heart attack, Susanna shouted, laughing. Oi seemed to take this as an order to speed up. He arrived at Susanna's wheelchair in less than two minutes, jumped into her lap, and then jumped down again and looked at them cheerfully. Olin! Ed! Suze. Hmm. Hi, Sir Throcken, Roland said, using the ancient word for the bumbler he'd first heard in a book read to him by his mother, the Throcken and the Dragon. Ah. So from a thematic standpoint, that the characters have died and or have been separated from one another, these little moments such a powerful punch. King continues to use this novel as a bridge, or more appropriately, a ferry, to move us from one bank to the next. One bank is the past, recounted in the tale of Lud while looking ahead to the Kala and beyond. Though their ultimate fates are already written, and there exists a lack of dramatic tension because of it, King still knows that he has to keep the plot going somehow, even if there's no true sense of danger, and that's the Stark Blast. But, like I said, devoid of any real threat, though there's still a twinge whenever Oi is in danger. And it goes a long way in bridging Jake, who so recently rejoined life in Midworld, to the growing gunslinger we see him to be in Wolves of the Kala. But through the Stark Blast, though it might be lacking any danger, it doesn't really have to. It's just a plot development to provide a structure to the stories presented within, which allows King, through Roland, to ponder the nature of tales and storytelling, which we get on page 31. Roland considered, Mayhap I'll tell you too, since it's long until dawn and we can sleep tomorrow away if we like. These tales nest inside each other. Yet the wind blows through both, which is a good thing. There's nothing like stories on a windy night when folks have found a warm place in a cold world. Hmm. 
Part 1. The Skin Man. Just as he had with the seven books that preceded this one, King continues to add little touches that enrich this world. Here showing us the custom that comes with the death of Roland's mother, how everyone wore clothes to symbolize mourning for six months. Roland and his father discuss the events at the end of Wizard in Glass with Rhea, the grapefruit, and his mother's death. Though it's been ten years for us since the publication of that point, um, Wizard in Glass, here we are, only six months after where we had left off young Roland in the pages of Wizard in Glass. The real-time publication only goes to help the sensation of time growing strange in the pages of these novels. And when Roland's father sends him on a mission to Debaria with Jamie DeCurry, King is finally able to write of a character he had referenced for decades but have never seen in full until now. And though the tale of Roland is ultimately complete, he still gives us rich world-building, as we see on page 40. Two days later, Jamie and I led our horses onto the stable car of a special two-train car that had been laid for us. Once the western line ran a thousand wheels or more, all the way to the Mohane Desert, but in the years before Gilead fell, it went to Debaria and no further. Beyond there, many track lines had been destroyed by washouts and ground shakers. Others had been taken up by harriers and roving bands of outlaws who called themselves land pirates, for that part of the world had fallen into bloody confusion. We called those far western lands Outworld, and they served John Farson's purpose as well. He was, after all, just a land pirate himself, one with pretensions. The boys then travel to Debaria, where they first meet the sisters at Serenity. Here they receive the tale of the shapeshifter that had attacked one of the women, Fortuna, and if the descriptions of the attack invoke Cycle of the Werewolf, why shouldn't it? The attacks by the skin changer in this story are similar to those in the pages of the collaboration with Bernie Wrightson. Anyway, not only does King establish the mystery of the Skin Man, but he also teases the mystery of Everlyn, the woman in charge of Serenity, who recognizes Roland as Gabriel's son and commands him to return to her after finishing off the monster that's terrorizing the land. Roland and Jamie immediately jump into the case, which is fun. First of all, with the murders as horrific as they are, our characters are stepping into King's wheelhouse as a horror author. It's just like one of your typical King horror stories, except this time the protagonists are gunslingers. And the fact that they're assigned a case gives it an X-Files quality to it. And I'd like to see more of that. How fun would it be to see King chronicle these standalone adventures of these characters as each adventure is another case they must solve? I'll talk about this more in my analysis of Jamie as a character, but it's a lot of fun watching him function as a detective, piecing together the crime scene and the aftermath of murder. Then, as Roland comforts Bill Streeter, the only survivor of a recent massacre who Roland is using as bait, he launches into the second tale within the tale, the title of the novel itself, The Wind Through the Keyhole. The Wind Through the Keyhole. The story is simple enough, and that's not a criticism. It's supposed to be. Big Ross, Tim's father, dies in the fairy tale woods, and when, he's, when his supposed best friend comes around to marry Tim's recently widowed mother... The reader can infer that Big Ross had not died by Dragonfire, after all. After his mother's marriage to his father's murderer, Tim overhears the beginnings of domestic abuse, a concept that King has tackled in many of his books, Rose Matter, Insomnia, It, Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, to name a few. And before long, we meet the villainous Covenant Man, the latest in a long line of Stephen King villains, which we get beginning on page 131. Reaping was gone by, Huntress Moon grew pale, waxed again, and pulled her bow. The first gales of wide earth came howling from the west. And just when it seemed he might not come at all, the barony covenanter blew into the village of Tree, and one of those cold winds astride his tall black horse and as thin as Tom's scrawny death. His heavy black cloak flapped around him like a bat wing, beneath his wide hat as black as his cloak. The pale lamp of his face turned ceaselessly from one side to the next, marking a new fence here, a cow or three added to a herd there. The villagers would grumble but pay, and if they couldn't pay, their land would be taken in the name of Gilead. Perhaps even then, in those olden days, some were whispering it wasn't fair, the taxes were too much, that Arthur Eld was long dead if he had ever existed at all, and the covenant had been paid a dozen times over in blood as well as silver. 
Perhaps some of them were already waiting for a good man to appear and make them strong enough to say, no more, enough's enough, the world has moved on. Perhaps, but not that year, and not for many and many uh, to come. Late in the afternoon, while the swag-bellied clouds tumbled across the sky and the yellow corn stalks clattered in Nell's garden-like teeth and a loose jaw, Cy Covenanter nudged his tall black horse between the gate posts Big Ross had set up for himself, with Tim looking on and helping when asked. The horse paced slowly and solemnly up to the front steps. There it halted, nodding and blowing. Big Kells stood on the porch and still had to look up at the visitor's pallid face. Kells held his hat crushed to his breast. His thinning black hair flew around his head. Behind him in the doorway stood Nell and Tim. She had an arm around her boy's shoulders and was clutching him tightly, as if afraid that the Covenant man might steal him away. For a moment there was silence, save for the flapping of the unwelcome visitor's cloak and the wind, which sang an eerie tune beneath the eaves. Then the barony covenanter, covenanter bent forward, regarding Kells with wide, dark eyes that did not seem to blink. His lips, Tim saw, were as red as a woman's when she paints them with fresh matter. From somewhere inside his cloak he produced not a book of slates but a roll of real parchment paper, and pulled it down so twas long. He studied it, made it short again, and replaced it in whatever inner pocket it had come from. Then he returned his gaze to Big Kells, who flinched and looked at his feet. Kells, isn't it? He had a rusky, husky voice that made Tim's skin pucker into hard points of goose flesh. He had seen this man before, but only from a distance. His da had made shift to keep Tim away from the house when the barony's tax man came calling on his annual rounds. Now Tim understood why. He thought he would have bad dreams tonight. Everything leading up to this point has been world-building, well-written, but the inclusion of the Covenant Man, who is speculated to be Flag himself, bumps the story into uh, the stratosphere. And like previous incarnations of Flag, he functions as a tempter, whispering ideas into Tim's ear in a creepy scene that invokes uh, the connotation of molestation. The Covenant Man abducts the boy, whispers in his ear, covers him with his cloak, and Tim feels him slither something into his pocket. It's completely non-sexual. The object is just a key, but the connotation is there. And then later, while in the woods, King writes... The Covenant Man was forcing something into Tim's mouth. Tim tried to fend him off, but it did no good. The Covenant Man simply seized Tim's hair at the back of his head, and when Tim yelled, the mouth of a flask was shoved between his teeth. Some fiery liquid gushed down his throat. Not red eye, for instead of making him drunk, it calmed him. Um, and that's icky, and it should be. Though what's happening isn't isn't what it sounds like. The symbolism is there. And as King has done in previous stories, like Low Men in Yellow Coats, he writes about the symbolic death or the corruption of childhood. In this case, the corruption comes with the realization that Tim's father has been murdered by his partner. Tim enters the woods on his fairy tale adventure, heading past the sign marked Traveler Beware and into a swamp where he's followed by hungry creatures before jumping upon a dragon's head. It's a great moment, and Tim manages to survive, even manages to fend off the monstrous alligator-like creatures with bunches of eyes on stalks. He's rescued by swamp people who are becoming part of the swamp itself. It's disgusting, with moss and mushrooms growing from their skin and spiders bursting from their sores. Still, they're helpful to Tim, taking him across the swamp so he can reach Merlin. Tim is equipped with a North Positronics device, um, North Central Positronics device that guides him through the forest as he embarks upon his own The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon adventure. King kicks in the suspense and ties it back to the skin man with the coming of the Stark Blast. There's wonderful imagery in this sequence, with deadly mushrooms, a Billy Bumbler playing by moonlight, a waterfall with tentacled monstrosities slithering up from the bottom, and a caged tiger by a dogen. Through Debaria, 
Um, the guiding resource, I'm sorry, through Daria, the guiding resource from North Central Positronics, we learn that the guardian of this beam is Aslan, the great lion who lives in the endless snows of the North. Another example of King expanding his mythology while giving a shout out to C.S. Lewis. He finds a note from the Covenant Man who signs it R.F. and M.B. Um, and then light lets the tiger out of the cage. The two of you friends hide under the magic napkin which keeps them safe from this coming Stark Blast. And rather than it being written as a harrowing moment, King focuses on its beauty. It was warm beneath the sheet, and the sleeping bulk of his bunkmate made it even warmer. At some point, he slipped down their covering enough to see a trillion stars sprawled across the dome of the sky, more than he had ever seen in his life. It was as if the storm had blown tiny holes in the world above the world and turned it into a sieve. Shining through was all the brilliant mystery of creation. Perhaps such things were not meant for human eyes, but Tim felt sure he had been granted a special dispensation to look, for he was under a blanket of magic, and lying next to a creature even the most credulous villagers in tree would have dismissed as mythical. He felt awe as he looked up at those stars, but also deep and abiding contentment, such as he had felt as a child, awakening in the night, safe and warm beneath his quilt, drowsing half in and half out of sleep, listening to the wind sing its lonely song of other places and other lives. Time is a keyhole, he thought as he looked up at the stars. Yes, I think so. We sometimes bend and peer through it, and the wind we feel on our cheeks when we do, the wind that blows through the keyhole, is the breath of all living universe. The wind roared across the empty sky, the cold deepened, but Tim Ross lay safe and warm, with a tiger sleeping beside him. At some point, he slipped away himself into a rest that was deep and satisfying and untroubled by dreams. As he went, he felt that he was very wee and flying on the wind that blew through time's keyhole, away from the edge of the Great Canyon, over the endless forest of the Fagengard above the Ironwood Trail, past Tree, just a brave little nestle of lights from where he rode the wind, and farther, farther, oh, very much farther, across the entire reach of Midworld, to where a huge ebony tower reared itself into the heavens. I will go there. Someday I will. It was his last thought before sleep took him. After the Stark Blast, Tim drops some magic potion into the tiger's mouth, which transforms the beast into its true form. Merlin, at long last, we meet the wizard teased as far back in the pages of the Gunslinger. There, it was suggested that the wizard would be a villain, and throughout the course of the series, the identity flip-flopped, sometimes Merlin being Flag, other times not. Here, it's clear. If the Covenant Man is clearly Flag, then he can't be Merlin. Merlin tells Tim that the Crimson King was the one who imprisoned him in the cage, having been having given power to a peddler. And who might this man be? Maybe we've met him already. Perhaps in the pages of a little story about Castle Rock? Anyway, Merlin gives Tim a magic carpet to fly away home, and King lets us know that Tim will meet Merlin again, but only later when he himself is an old man. And that is a story for another day. Tim returns home, heals his mother, follows Merlin's wishes by giving his mother the axe, which she uses to save her son's life by murdering and attacking uh, the attacking Big Kells. And then King teases Tim's future as a gunslinger who had many further adventures. Which brings us to The Skin Man, Part 2. It all boils down to the moment when they discover the skin man... Um, in a scene reminiscent of John Carpenter's The Thing. While Billy is in the jail cell, having just identified the skin man, all hell breaks loose. Aang twisted from the chin up. I don't mean he grimaced. His entire head twisted. It was like watching a cloth being wrung by invisible hands. His eyes rose up until one was almost above the other, and they turned from blue to jet black. His skin paled first to white, then to green. It rose as if pushed by fists from beneath, 
and cracked into scales. His clothes dropped from his body because his body was no longer that of a man. Nor was it a bear or a wolf or a lion. Those things we might have been prepared for. We might even have been prepared for an alligator, such as the thing that had assaulted the unfortunate Fortuna at Serenity, although it was closer to an alligator than anything else. In the space of three seconds, Ali Ang turned into a man-high snake, a pookie. Luca, still holding onto an arm that was shrinking towards that fat green body, gave out a yell that was muffled when the snake, still with a flopping tonsure of human hair around its elongating head, jammed itself into the old man's mouth. There was a wet popping sound as Luca's lower jaw was torn from the joints and tendons holding it to the upper. I saw his waddled neck swell and grow smooth as that thing, still changing, still standing on the dwindling remnants of human legs, bored into his throat like a drill. There were yells and screams of horror from the head of the aisle as the other salty stampeded. I paid them no notice. I saw Jamie wrap his arms around the snake's growing, swelling body in a fruitless attempt to pull it out of the dying steg Luca's throat, and I saw the enormous reptilian head when it tore its way through the nape of Luca's neck, its ragged tongue flickering, its scaly head painted with beads of blood and bits of flesh. However... This is not a shapeshifter attacking just anybody. This is Roland the Gunslinger, who is more than capable. The fangs tore free. Burns, Wegg said in a low voice, and then he could say no more. His throat swelled and his tongue shot out of his mouth. He collapsed, shuddering in his death throes. The snake stared at me, its forked tongue licking in and out. They were black snake eyes, but they were filled with human understanding. I lifted the revolver holding the special load. I had only one silver shell, and the head was weaving erratically from side to side, but I never doubted I could make the shot. It's what such as I was made for. It lunged, fangs flashing, and I pulled the trigger. The shot was true, and the silver bullet went right into that yawning mouth. The head blew away in a spatter of red that had begun to turn white even before it hit the bars and the floors of the corridor. I had seen much such mealy white flesh before. It was brains. Human brains. From there, King ends his little dip back into the waters of Midworld on a beautiful note with the letter from Gabriel to Roland. Okay, guys. Um, so that is the story. Now what I want to do, I want to talk about the characters. First of all, let's talk about Jamie DeCurry. Now, this is the first time that we're spending with this character, who had been referenced, I don't know, I believe as far back in the pages of The Gunslinger. In interviews before the publication of this novel, King stated that he was thinking about writing a Dark Tower story about a young Roland and Cuthbert fighting a werewolf. I don't know why Cuthbert was switched out with Jamie. Maybe because Jamie had long been referenced and was one of the Ka members that supposedly meant a great deal to Roland, but one that we hadn't spent time with. So on one hand, it's nice that we got to meet Jamie in full and to spend time with him, even if it's brief. With that said, give me more Cuthbert. <laughs> the story always comes alive when it's Cuthbert and Roland. Also with Jamie, there was points where I wasn't sure if there was enough of a distinction between Elaine's personality and Jamie's. At one point, while on the train heading back towards Debaria, they hit a bump, which throws Jamie off the bunk. King mentions how Cuthbert would have laughed, Elaine would have cursed, and Jamie just picks himself up. From what I remember of Elaine Wizard in Glass, I can see him being the one to just pick himself up. He seems so much more level-headed than Roland and Bert. Maybe it's because we never really got to see Jamie in the context of coexisting within the larger group. However, I like Jamie as a character. You know, everything that I just said, King, you know, starts to make some distinctions that I wish that he had, I don't know, more time to, to let grow. Because these distinctions I, I find very, well, distinct. Um, you know, especially when you compare him against the other characters. Uh, you know, he's calm. He's thoughtful. He's observant. You know, and it's neat that he doesn't prefer to use the guns. Instead, he likes the bow and arrow. I like that. 
Um, and then, you know, King takes the time to present him as having an analytical mind, a keen eye, and an ability to deduce. He's able to gain information simply by looking at the skin man's tracks, which portrays him more like Sherlock Holmes than Clint Eastwood. So I like this about him. I like that he's more of a detective than a cowboy or a knight. And I think that if we were to get more stories about those in-between years, between the, uh, the time Roland became a gunslinger to the time uh, Gilead finally fell at the Battle of Jericho Hill, if we got more stories, more of these X-Files adventures, more of these missions that they have to go on or more investigations into the, 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 the growing power of the good man, if we saw Jamie and Elaine and Cuthbert and Roland all working together, then, uh, then I think that we would start to see just how different Jamie was from the others. And I'd like to see his very um, deductive mind played against Cuthbert's foolery. I, I just think that that's a missed opportunity. And I think that's an opportunity that King still has to, to tell. Um, I would love more stories like this um, with a, a young Roland and his, his original commates. I think that their story's worth telling. I understand why he focused on Elaine and Susan and Cuthbert, because he later made the, the, the parallels between Susanna and Jake and Eddie with uh, his, um, between his new content and his older Cotet, but give me some more uh, Jamie, because I, I think that he's a character worth revisiting. Now let's talk about storytelling. All right? Uh, and if we're going to talk about storytelling, we have to talk about the Canterbury Tales. And it's something I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it, it wasn't that long ago when I finished reviewing the, um, the Dark Tower the Dark Tower, the last one, and I think that I touched upon the, the Canterbury Tales, but it's something that I should have talked about as far back in the Gunslinger review, because from the very beginning, this series has focused on the power of storytelling, uh, partially inspired by Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. We see that immediately in the pages of The Gunslinger. As soon as we meet Roland, he encounters Brown, a character who serves only so that Roland has someone to whom he can tell his tale. From there, we get the tale of Tull, and after Brown, we meet Jake, who then tells his tale to Roland. Roland then tells his tale of childhood and becoming a gunslinger to Jake, and the novel concludes with a palaver between Walter and Roland. Tales within tales of a larger story told to us by Stephen King. And this thread continues, not so much in Drawing of the Three or the Wastelands, but comes back full force with the Wizard in Glass, whose bulk is the story that Roland is telling to his cotet. Later in Wolves of the Kala, Callahan tells us his tale. In the Song of Susanna, Mia tells hers. And even in the Dark Tower, we still have more time for stories as Ted Rodigan tells us his origin story. So storytelling has been built into the DNA of this series. So it should come as no surprise that King decided to write a cleverly structured collection of short stories that function as a Russian doll. One story hidden within the next. And we are included in this concept if you think about it. We are included in the grand multiverse that King has built, and in our world, we hold the book of the stories that exists another world away. Within that book that has featured our author, our author tells us a story, a story of a character who tells a story. During his story, he recounts the stories told to him um, by Fortunata, by Sheriff Peavy, before ultimately telling this tale of Tim Stoutheart, which had been told to him by his mother, who may have heard it from a certain wizard. Like I said, all contained within a multiverse that includes Keystone Earth. Redemption. Here is the most poignant aspect of this novel. The fact that it thematically picks up where the Dark Tower had left off. Now bear with me on this one. Though this installment is published after the events of the Dark Tower, the events take place before the conclusion of the saga, as Roland is still making his way towards Endworld. But because the saga concludes with Roland thrust into his past, it makes sense that from a thematic standpoint that we, too, are in the past and further along in the journey than when we left him when King concluded with the line that began it all. The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Keep in mind, I'm only speaking thematically here. I believe that from a storytelling standpoint, this novel does fit in a timeline that stretched from 1982 to 2004. 
and is not an entry in the new timeline established with the revelation that Roland had picked up the horn that day on Jericho Hill. Or maybe it is, I don't know. I mean, there's no mention of having lost the horn, so this could be the new timeline, though I doubt it. That would suggest that the Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi are not our Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi, as they are all now living in New York City, working for the Tet Corporation, Eddie and Jake, now brothers, the last name Torin. However, though it doesn't line up from a literal, linear storytelling perspective, man, oh man, does this suggest that Roland's fate is ultimately a hopeful one. The End of the Dark Tower is a major kick in the balls, a gutsy move on King's part. What creator would end his decades-long saga, revealing that his main character has been a fool the entire time, and subsequently punished into a hellish state of existence for his complete misunderstanding of what his quest really was? There's a suggestion that perhaps Roland will never learn, that he is fated to be broken over and over again by the wheel of Ka. But then Wind Through the Keyhole comes along and gives us a glimpse into our past, and this tells us everything about the ultimate fate of Roland. For one, this isn't a solo adventure like the Little Sisters of Illyria. This is Roland during his peak comfort and joy with his quartet. This is Roland at his best. And thusly, this is significant. It speaks to the man that Roland can still become. Furthermore, in his flashback, he is once again paired with the boy, and when contrasted with Jake, it speaks volumes. Roland's relationship with Jake was his sacrifice of the child, the action that ultimately damned him, because Stephen King believed that he did not deserve a happy ending after what he did to Jake. His first pairing with a boy revolved around a sacrifice. This pairing revolves around his desire to save the boy, and with it, himself. But most importantly, King points us towards Roland's redemption with the closing line from the book. The message given to Roland by his mother, which absolves him from her murder, but symbolically speaks to Roland's entire life and feels like a message from Gabe, less like a message from Gabriel and more like a message from the universe itself. The two most beautiful words in any language are, I forgive. And leading up to that is probably the most significant passage in the entirety of the Dark Tower series, one that all but guarantees Roland's salvation, the author's hand on the shoulder of the reader telling us to breathe easy and that everything was going to be all right. And he gives this to, him, gives this to us starting on page 306. She took his three-fingered hand in both of hers, what did it say at the end? What were the words you traced over and over until her letter fall apart? Can you tell me? He didn't answer for a long time. Just when she was sure that he wouldn't, he did. In his voice, almost undetectable, but most certainly there was a tremor Susanna had never heard before. She wrote in the low speech until the last line. That she wrote in the high each character beautifully drawn. I forgive you everything. And can you forgive me? Susanna felt a single tear, warm and perfectly human, run down her cheek. Could you, Roland? Did you? Still looking out the window, Roland of Gilead, son of Stephen and Gabriel, she of Artin that was, smiled. It broke upon his face like the first glow of sunrise on a rocky landscape. He spoke a single word before going back to his gunna to build them an afternoon breakfast. The word was yes. So guys, um, we have some Stephen Kingisms here. Uh, the first of which uh, is J.R.L. Tolkien. As we know, Stephen King loves his J.R.L. Tolkien references, as he was a major inspiration to Stephen King as a writer. And um, here we have Took's Mercantile. Number two is Trains. Jamie and Roland take a train. We have seen trains used um, in the pages of The Talisman and most famously in The Wastelands. Number three, Domestic Abuse. 
Big Kel regularly beats Nell, and we have seen domestic abuse in a myriad of his stories. Uh, number four, uh, alcoholic. Kel is an alcoholic, and alcoholism is something that King has written uh, in a number of his stories. Number five, the man in black and the boy in the woods. The relationship between the boy and the covenant man is very similar to that of the man in the black suit from the Everything's Eventual short story collection. And number six is the napkin playing a crucial part of the fairy tale. The magic napkin keeps the tiger and Tim warm during the Stark Blast. The napkin was also how Peter escaped the needle in Eyes of the Dragon. Now, Easter eggs. Time for Easter eggs. First of which is Flag. Now, though we watched him suffer his brutal end in the final Dark Tower book, he returns here, as King tells us so in the introduction. So I assume that he's referring to the Covenant Man, the villain of The Wind Through the Keyhole. Now, here's the thing. The Wind Through the Keyhole is a fairy tale within Roland's world, so this isn't really the flag that we know. Either the story is a fairy tale that is rooted in some truth, or it's just a fairy tale. However, even if it's just a fairy tale, there's still power to it. After all, the Dark Tower is just a fairy tale to us, but we live in Stephen King's world, the real world, and the battle that raged in the pages of the Dark Tower was real enough to cause King to get hit by that van. So, even though it might not be just a story, just being a story is still very powerful. And that would allow Flag to live on. Not Walter Paddock, the poor boy who set out on a road to damnation, but the very idea of Flag. Flag the concept. Flag the meme. This idea can live on in any medium. In our reality, as the chaos that brews on the streets during a racial riot. In the world of our fairy tales as the villainous walking dude. Or in the fairy tales of our fairy tales as the Covenant Man. But even within this fairy tale, there's some interesting thoughts to explore. The Covenant Man is clearly supposed to be Flag or Walter or Martin, whoever you want to call him. The descriptions are similar. He titters. He has pale skin. He's got the red lips. King even goes so far as to having one character discuss the rumor that he's a magician in the kingdom of Gilead, advising the line of Eld. So, there you go. And later on, he um, signs the, the, the letters with his, his initials. Now, think of this. Think about the origins of this story, right? Roland tells it to a boy, and Roland had been told to it by his mother. So, I think that there's a lot to mine there. What does the story include but the unfortunate decision of a mother who pays for it, whose son goes off on a quest as the result of a magician's interference? It's eerily similar to the story of Gabrielle, who was lured into a relationship, who suffered for it, and whose son was ushered from childhood into adulthood by the wizard, just like Tim in The Covenant Man. So if Roland is telling Gabrielle's story... You can interpret that she is already having an affair, or there are feelings, and this guilt works its way into the fairy tale. Or because Ka is a wheel, on some level she knows the sad future of both her and her child, and Ka works it into the story. But if Gabrielle had heard a version first from Martin, then is he rubbing their future in their faces without them even knowing it? And is he weaving a version of his own past into the story? After all, we know his name is Walter Paddock, who left his home as a boy. What if the core element of Wind Through the Keyhole is the same, but the names and the places are different? What if, in his story here, Flag makes himself as Tim, out to be a more sympathetic figure? If that's the case, then is there a Covenant Man, and who would that be? We know that he, Walter, is raped along the road, but continued going. I've already referenced the descriptions of molestation. Clearly, Flag wouldn't want others to know what really happened to him, so in a story, he'd soften it, wouldn't he? So I don't know. I don't know if it's something that, that King really intended to do, but it's definitely something to think about. Number two, um, Tack. In Desperation and the Regulators, King created a villain who was trapped within the pits below a mine, an extra-dimensional monster who could access our world through a crack in the wall. And that is how the Skin Man, that's the origin of the Skin Man. Number two, Andy. King references Andy, though our characters haven't met him yet, and conveniently makes our characters forget ever hearing the name. Number three, the Crimson King gets a shout-out, 
referred to as the Red King in the story of Tim Stoutheart. And number four, Garland is mentioned, a kingdom often referenced but never seen. Now, I have two quotes that I think sum up the importance of this, this particular novel. Um, one is this. The stories we hear in childhood are the ones we remember our, all, all our lives. And the next one is, a person is never too old for stories. Man and boy, girl and woman, never too old. We live for them. And I think that that speaks volumes. Okay, everybody, that's all that I have for this week. If you have any thoughts, uh, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. If you have not done so already, head on over to uh, iTunes to write a review and um, that and, and a subscription. That would go a long way in helping me out. And um, make sure that you, you come back for next episode where I will review the uh, very short uh, examination of coming of age in your early 20s as you take your first steps from um, from late teens, you know, late young adulthood into actual adulthood, um, where you, you learn about um, adult friendships for the first time and heartbreak, the uh, the short but very effective joy land. And uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Yeah, so my friend is a blowing in.